You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to GI Insights, where we cover the latest clinical issues, trends, and technologies in gastroenterological practice. GI Insights is brought to you by AGA Institute. Your host for GI Insights is Professor of Medicine and Director of the Digestive Disease Center at the Medical University of South Carolina, Dr. Mark DeLeggi. Genetic testing can help explain the underlying cause of recurrent pancreatitis, but does the test result improve management of the condition? And if a test does show a genetic mutation associated with pancreatitis, will improving the patient's quality of life be enough to outweigh the risk of discrimination from employers or insurers? Joining us to discuss genetic testing for pancreatic disease, weighing the option is Dr. Alfonso Brown, Assistant Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School, and co-director of the Pancreas Center at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. Welcome, Alfonso. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Alfonso, I want to start off at the beginning just with pancreatitis. Is pancreatitis a problem in the U.S.? Is it common? Yes, it's a fairly common disease. It is a problem primarily because, according to statistics recently published by an AGA think group, it results in more than a billion dollars per year in lost earnings and work time for individuals who have to call out sick. Also, despite many years of research into treatment for pancreatitis, we still don't have a lot of great options once the disease has manifested itself and begun to take place. There's a lot of work on both ends and still remains a significant problem. If you had to stick your finger on the most common causes of acute pancreatitis, what would you say? Well, in the United States and most Western countries, the most common causes are gallstones and alcohol use. They account for more than 70% of the cases of acute pancreatitis that are commonly seen. In European countries, alcohol appears to be more of a factor. However, these are the two most common causes. And from the perspective of myself as a gastroenterologist, just review with me some of the less common causes. Well, some of the less common causes of pancreatitis that we're likely to see First of all, a lot of individuals undergo ERCPs. Um, That's an endoscopic retrograde cholangiopancreatography. This test actually is the most common iatrogenic cause of pancreatitis with ranges in the literature from 2 to 6% of cases of acute pancreatitis are caused by that. Also, what we call microscopic gallstone disease or biliary microlithiasis is another condition that's often associated with recurrent pancreatitis that's commonly seen. There's a a very large number of drugs, primarily things that are very common are antiretrovirals used for HIV, as well as drugs that we use to treat inflammatory bowel disease that have a strong association with pancreatitis. But what's not commonly known is that even drugs like aspirin and some of our antihypertensive meds such as ACE inhibitors and also even the cholesterol-lowering agents like simvastatin have also been associated with acute pancreatitis. Other etiologies that we don't want to miss and must always be considered are structural anomalies, and there's something called pancreas divism, which is a structural anomaly. It's a congenital anomaly that occurs in approximately 7% of the population, but it does not always cause pancreatitis. That's where the controversy arises from it. But when it is seen, it's one of the things that we need to think about. And of course, things like malignancy are also very uncommon, but especially in elderly individuals who develop pancreatitis that's unexplained is something that needs to be thought about. Recently, there are much more rare conditions such as autoimmune pancreatitis, which is an actual disease entity in which the body attacks the pancreas as foreign. In the past, it had been seen more in places like Japan, but 
Now, with our increased ability to diagnose it and significant improvements in our MRI and CT technology, we're picking this up much more in the United States. And then finally, one of the rarer conditions that's being seen but has improved with a new introduction of technology is genetic diseases of the pancreas that also result in recurrent acute pancreatitis. And there have now been several gene mutations that have been identified and are also associated with the development of pancreatitis. And these are things that we have to think about. I call them secondary and tertiary causes amongst the things that are fairly common and are most commonly seen. You know, you beat on something there that just resonates with me. Often we have this diagnosis of idiopathic pancreatitis. I mean, we don't know. So what I'm hearing is there's a lot more causes than we had thought about originally. That's correct. And, you know, the literature on this is not, I wouldn't say controversial, but most individuals would say after one episode of pancreatitis, if it's not fairly obvious that there's not a good reason to look, and this has been, you know, published in, in other places, and for the most part, if it doesn't fall into the category of the more common things, oftentimes, you know, one would stop there. However, once an individual has more than two attacks of pancreatitis, it warrants a more detailed investigation for some of these other things. And one thing I also didn't mention is like hypertriglyceridemia, high calcium levels. These are other things that sort of might not get picked up in the first evaluation, but then subsequently, if a patient comes back, these are things you want to look for. And uh, actually, because of my function as a consultant as well, Oftentimes, I'm asked to see patients who've had multiple attacks, and these are the things that we start to look at in the evaluation. Well, I'm intrigued now, so let me ask you directly, what's the role of genetic testing for patients with pancreatitis? I'm seeing patients in my practice, they may have recurrent acute pancreatitis. When do I decide to move towards genetic testing? Well, it's an excellent question, and one of the things that I've come to learn, and I say I've come to learn because my thinking always wasn't in this way, is that genetic testing is something that really needs to be thought about a great deal and discussed with the patient. And, and it's probably best to take a page from some of the other tests that were available, such as the BRCA2 gene for individuals with breast cancer. What we have in the setting now is that we have several genes that have been identified that are associated with pancreatitis, and I'll name a few. Um, the cationic trypsinogen gene, which was one of the first that was discovered by David Whitcomb, their group, and it's been shown to be associated with hereditary pancreatitis, which is an autosomal dominant genetic disorder that consists of recurrent episodes of acute pancreatitis and also has frequent progression to chronic pancreatitis. We also now know that mutations in the cystic fibrosis transmembrane conductance regulator gene can also result in recurrent pancreatitis. And I want to point out here that these individuals don't have true pulmonary cystic fibrosis. Um, they're heterozygotes for these mutations, and so therefore, the pancreatic manifestations are the principal way in which their disease manifests itself. There's also mutations in the pancreatic secretory trypsin inhibitor gene, PSTI, and these individuals also are typified by recurrent episodes of pancreatitis, and SPINK1 is normally an inhibitor of trypsin. So we now have the ability to test for these, when individuals do not have a clear-cut diagnosis after an extensive evaluation, I think it's fair at that point to consider uh, diagnostic testing for these particular genetic abnormalities. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to GI Insights from ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Mark DeLegge, and joining me to discuss 
genetic testing for pancreatic disease, weighing the options, is Dr. Afonso Brown, Assistant Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School and co-director of the Pancreas Center at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. Afonso, I have to ask you, that was a whole list of potential genetic abnormalities. Are these blood tests or serum tests that are available at most institutions, are they send-outs? Right. They're send-outs, and one of the companies that primarily does most of this testing is Ambry Genetics, and there's a special order form, for example, at our institution that we use for individuals who are considered. You fill in the history, and they have a pancreatitis panel, if you will, in which several of these mutations are checked for. I mean, they, for example, with CFTR, there are many, many mutations, the Delta F508 mutation being the most common of these, and these are routinely checked for as well. Essentially, again, for individuals who are suspected might have a genetic cause for their pancreatitis, it's just a simple matter of obtaining the history. You include that. They're sent to have the blood drawn, and then it gets sent to Ambry. And in about three to four weeks, the physician will get back a letter determining whether or not they um, have any of the mutations. And they also provide some literature on the frequency of the mutation and whether or not it's been definitively associated with recurrent attacks of pancreatitis. You know, one of the frustrating things for me is the patient who arrives to the hospital with recurrent acute pancreatitis, and I don't have a discernible cause immediately, like a gallstone or hyperlipidemia, and I'm trying to treat that patient, and invariably, I end up treating the symptoms, meaning that I'm not aware of any specific drug for the disease. So has that started to change at all, or are we pretty much still in symptomatic treatment? For the most part, we are, and I do say there are some things which are showing a great deal of promise at this point. Several years ago, I published a paper with Peter Banks and a group of the Brigham and Women's Hospital, in which we looked at serum-based markers that were predictive of severe outcome. And the goal there would be to identify people who are at risk for a severe outcome of the disease, which is invariably where most people who have this disease die, and then try to triage them to an ICU or provide them with interventional therapy at a more rapid pace. And so what we did find was things like serum hematocrit are predictive. Also, early fluid resuscitation in another paper we published has been shown to help ameliorate the symptoms of the disease. Since then, there have been a lot of other studies that have been published looking at scoring systems um, that predict disease. But for the most part, disease treatment is symptomatic. Now, there are some special cases. If an individual has gallstones and there's evidence of cholangitis, then it's very good evidence that ERCP with sphincterotomy emergently helps those patients have a better outcome, and that's why gallstones are looked at fairly early in the disease course and treated accordingly. And also for individuals with autoimmune pancreatitis, there's a, a lot of data that shows that steroid therapy tends to work very well for these patients, and you actually get radiologic and clinical resolution of symptoms fairly quickly. It can be quite dramatic. So we do have some treatments available. It's just that, for the most part, treatment still remains fairly supportive and um, reduction of symptoms. You know, I know somebody's going to ask you, if that's the case, why look for genetic abnormalities as a cause? Meaning, if it's not going to change your management, are there pros and cons to actual testing? I think that's an excellent question, and it's a very fair question. And actually, I'm asked that one by patients as well. And I'll be honest with you, before I order a genetic test on a patient, that's something that I make sure that I explain to them is the case. And an interesting thing started to happen recently. I noted that a lot of patients, especially those with recurrent and explained disease, would have very frequent either calls or admissions to the hospital with attacks of their pancreatitis. 
And when we finally got to the point where we said, okay, we've looked at a number of different things, we should consider whether or not a genetic etiology of your pancreatitis is active here, we would then have the discussion about what that specifically means and what we could test for. And I would also explain to them that they potentially could face either insurance-related or job-related with regards to employment-related discrimination for the genetic testing. Once the patients agreed to that, we would do the test. And for those that were positive, a remarkable thing is that the majority of them actually stopped being admitted to the hospital. And I got me thinking whether or not that was a phenomenon associated with them going somewhere else, which I don't think is what happened, or maybe it was a, a factor of a quality of life. And that was something that intrigued me and I wanted to look at. I also wanted to determine whether or not this testing could potentially negatively impact them since our advice after these tests come back positive is that we try to eliminate any known pancreatotoxins and try to maintain just a normal lifestyle that will help keep the pancreas healthy. And by that, I mean specifically avoiding things like alcohol, cigarettes, any trauma to the abdomen as you know, in adolescence, at least, that's a common cause of pancreatic injury, and then keeping well hydrated. So we emphasize these things, but explain to them that knowing that you have a genetic abnormality that causes pancreatitis doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to be able to prevent or treat attacks once they occur. I would like to thank my guest from Harvard Medical School, Dr. Afonso Brown, for this fascinating interview. Dr. Brown, thank you very much for being our guest this week on GI Insights. Mark, thank you so much for having me, and I truly enjoyed our discussion. Thank you. You've been listening to GI Insights on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. GI Insights is brought to you by AGA Institute. For additional information on this program and on-demand podcasts, visit us at ReachMD.com and use promo code AGA. Update your clinical knowledge and improve your delivery of patient care by registering for the 2010 AGA Clinical Congress. By attending, you'll learn from renowned experts in the field who will address the most relevant clinical issues in gastroenterology and hepatology. The Congress will be in Las Vegas January 15th and 16th with an optional add-on sedation course January 17th. Bring your nurse and attend this team-based course to obtain the essential information and hands-on training to safely and effectively administer sedation for GI procedures. Learn more and register today at www.gastro.org slash clinicalcongress. The American Gastroenterological Association is the trusted voice of the GI community. Our membership has grown to include 17,000 members from around the globe who are involved in all aspects of the science, practice, and advancement of gastroenterology. Discover what the AGA could mean to you. Visit www.gastro.org.